This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Today I want to talk about secularism and Canadian law because this has come up multiple times in recent news. We just had the Trinity Western University ruling. I'll get into a little bit of that, but we've also talked a bit about that, so I might use that as a launching point to look at what other cases are coming up. But I also want to reflect back on a couple of the other big ones because a surprising amount has happened in just the last three years in Canadian law that's really starting to shape what our country is. Canada, as many of you will know, doesn't have the establishment clause that the U.S. has. We don't have an explicit charter separation in church and state. But despite the U.S. having that, they seem to be having more problems with it, whereas I think I can give you reasons to be optimistic about where we are and where we're going. And the biggest reason for that is the Saguenay ruling that I want to start off on. So I'm going to talk about four recent Supreme Court of Canada rulings For anyone who doesn't know, the Supreme Court of Canada is the highest court in this land. It rules on appeals from provincial appeal courts and the federal appeal courts who rule on appeals from superior courts across the country. So if you feel aggrieved, you might go to a human rights tribunal and make a complaint there. Or in a divorce case, you might be going to the Supreme Court. If you think there was an injustice or the judge didn't do the law right, you can appeal that to the Court of Appeal. They can choose to hear it or not. If you don't like their decision, you can appeal that to the Supreme Court of Canada. Their word is final, and they are actually above Parliament on constitutional issues. So in the UK, Parliament doesn't have to listen to the Supreme Court there. They can just go and ignore those rulings and just pass a law that's unconstitutional because they don't have a written constitution. And since 1982, we do. The Saguenay ruling, though, let's start there. In 2006, there's this guy, Alain Simoneau, And he lives in Saguenay, which is a town north of Quebec City. And he's politically involved, and he's an atheist. And he goes to town council. And the mayor at the time is Jean Tremblay. And before every council meeting, when people are in the room, he starts doing a Catholic prayer every day. And he does obvious Catholic motions. He says very Catholic things. And Simoneau goes, this isn't right. You shouldn't be promoting Catholicism. And... You know, he disagrees with them and he asks them to stop doing it. Tremblay actually calls him out in the middle of council sessions and like points at the guy and goes, he's part of the problem with this city, that kind of stuff. Don't quote me on that specific, but he targets him. So Simino gets together with a group called Movement Laïque Québécois, which is Quebec's secular movement. Secularism in Quebec can be, is generally translated to Laïque, L-A-I-Q-U-E, with some accents, I forget where. But that word relates to a French concept of secularism, which isn't always a direct translation. So when we get to what the Supreme Court actually says, they don't use the word secularism, partially because of this translation issue, I think. It's not like they don't want to call this a secular country. So MLQ, which is Movement Laïque Québécois, and I'll just shorten it to MLQ because my French is bad. And Simoneau filed this complaint with the Quebec Human Rights Commission, which is called the 
tribunal, or sorry, the commission is called the Commission des droits de la personne et des droits de la jeunesse, the rights of people and kids commission. They look at it in provinces that have human rights commissions. Those are the first body you go to. They're essentially an organization set up at arm's length from the government to look at human rights issues. And if they think there's a substantial one there, they will file it as a complaint in a tribunal. BC had a human rights commission until 2001 when a government got in that didn't like it. They tore it down and were close to rebuilding it again. The idea here is that it frees up a bit of time for the tribunal so they're only taking on substantial cases rather than just everyone with a grievance, which slows down your court system. Luckily for Simino, this commission thought his grievance was legitimate. Simino had also complained about religious symbols. So I think the Saguenay City Hall has like a giant crucifix hanging behind it and those kind of overtly Christian and Catholic symbols. And he said those are also inappropriate. The tribunal gets to hear this case. They hear from experts from both sides. Sagan they both bring in some um, historians, sociologists, these kind of people, people who talk about what religion is, how do you define it, and these kind of issues. And they sort of make the human rights arguments within the framework of the Quebec Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is equivalent to the human right, the Charter of Canada. I'm going to go fast and probably talk a lot, but ask me lots of questions in the end, and we'll try and get back to it. The key point here is Simino and MLQ make this complaint about the prayers and the crosses being shown in, um, in the Saguenay City Council. While he's making this case, though, I think Tremblay realized he doesn't have a good chance of winning when he's doing Catholic prayers every day. So they pass a bylaw that actually makes it a non-denominational prayer, a sort of praise be to God, let's begin our council meeting. Now, he says that generic prayer while still doing all the Catholic motions and still with a Catholic cross behind him. So it didn't look too genuine. So the tribunal looks at all of this and goes, no, this is absurd. You're clearly pushing religion over non-religion, and you're probably pushing one specific one. Also, you were very rude to Simino, and that's not generally a you know, recourse. People are allowed to be rude to you. But if the mayor is targeting you because you disagree with him, and it's because you're an atheist, not just like because you disagree on a policy matter. Like if the mayor disagreed with you on housing policy, they could be a bit snide. I mean, it's not good politics, but it's not illegal. But because he was targeting him as an atheist, it was discrimination. So the tribunal found that, ordered the bylaw rescinded because it was unconstitutional, told the mayor to stop praying in the chambers, said all the symbols had to get removed from the council, and said because of that targeting that the mayor and actually the city of Saguenay owed Simino $30,000. And the Human Rights Commission, or Human Rights Tribunals can award damages. They don't generally award that much, but they found this to be so egregious and like clearly they were out to get Simino. The mayor and city appealed to the Quebec Court of Appeal and things went sideways there. The Court of Appeal decided that the non-denominational prayer reflected Quebec's history and it was sort of a universal thing, so it's not that big of a deal. They also looked at the experts that Simino had brought in and questioned the authority of them and said, well, we'll dismiss all of their evidence. And for some reason, the question about the symbols gets pulled out at this point and knocked down but ignored. And then that doesn't really come back up. So the Supreme Court of Canada actually only deals with the prayer and the question of symbols remains unanswered. Though it's hard to see when we get to the end how those can stay. After losing at the Quebec Court of Appeal, Simino and MLQ appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada, 
who accepted the case, heard it in 2014, and ruled in 2015. Everyone on that court agreed with Simino and the Human Rights Tribunal. So they totally removed the Quebec Court of Appeal ruling. They said everything in there is wrong, essentially, every step of the way. And they did this for a number of reasons. Essentially, there's some technical reasons I won't get into right away, but the main thing is the Supreme Court looks at this and says Canada, essentially, our governments, based on the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that says you have the freedom of religion, belief, and conscience. That means the government shouldn't be pushing religion. I'll read directly from the ruling because I really like this ruling. They say the state's duty of religious neutrality, so this is the phrase it uses rather than secularism, is a state duty of religious neutrality, results from an evolving interpretation of freedom of conscience and religion. It's another concept of our uh, jurisprudence, our courts, is our constitution evolves. It was written in 82, but we've evolved, like we recognize that same sec um, sexual orientation is protected by the charter, even though it doesn't write it down explicitly. The evolution of Canadian society has given rise to a concept of this neutrality, according to which the state must not interfere in religion and beliefs. The state must instead remain neutral in this regard, which means that it must neither favor nor hinder any particular belief, and the same holds true for non-belief. The government can't promote religion, any specific religion, religion in general. It also can't promote atheism. The pursuit of the ideal of a free and democratic society requires the state to encourage everyone to participate freely in public life, regardless of their beliefs. So they're giving actual thought into this and the philosophy, and this is just the summary of it. And if you go into the longer 100-page ruling or whatever it is, they actually go through and build this argument that we would make, that secularism is required so that we can all get along. Because if the state is picking sides, it tilts the balance, and then people who are pushed down can't participate. So they say a neutral public space free from coercion, pressure, and judgment on the part of public authorities in matters of spirituality is intended to protect every person's freedom and dignity, and it helps preserve and promote the multicultural nature of Canadian society. So multiculturalism is in the charter, and here they've tied multiculturalism to secularism. And they say, look, we can have everyone with their beliefs, and the only way we can do that is if the state isn't picking sides. The state's Duty to protect every person's freedom of conscience and religion means that it may not use its powers in such way as to promote the participation of certain believers or non-believers in public life to the detriment of others. If the state adheres to a form of religious expression under the guise of cultural or historical reality or heritage, it breaches its duty of neutrality. And that line I think is really important. That says, even if this is how things have always been done, it's still a breach. It's still wrong. And this is an argument people keep bringing up, you know, why change the anthem? It's always been this way. Well, it hasn't, but it's been this way for decades. Why should we change the anthem? Well, because it's discriminatory and it's wrong. Just because it's always been that way doesn't mean it's right. So they say the tribunal was therefore correct in holding that the state's duty of neutrality means that a state authority cannot make use of its powers to promote or impose religious belief. Contrary to what the Court of Appeal suggested, the state's duty to remain neutral on questions relating to religion cannot be reconciled with a benevolence that would allow it to adhere to a religious belief. So this is referring to things that like, the Court of Appeal talked about like a benevolent secular or like religiosity, where as long as the state's not like putting people in Christian concentration camps, it's okay or something. It's very vague and it's really hard to understand their ruling because they're really just trying to preserve Christian hegemony. They're trying to preserve Christianity. And here the court is saying there's no such thing as like a benevolent religious state. We need to have a secular state and that's the only way we can protect everyone. 
And to get specific, they say that a provision of a statute, regulation, or bylaw will be inoperative if its purpose is religious and therefore cannot be reconciled with the state's duty of neutrality. And that's basically saying if the government has passed a rule or a law or is doing something because of religion. So say they pass, this came up in the early charter rulings, I think 1988, the Big M Drug Mart case. This is where Alberta, I believe it was, and many other provinces had what were called Blue, Blue Day Acts or Sunday Lord's Day Acts, where they said no store can open on Sunday because we're setting that aside for Jesus. That rule, I mean, they didn't explicitly say Jesus in the law, but they said the Lord with a capital L. And the court looked at it and said, this doesn't have a secular purpose. The purpose of this law is to promote religion. It's to make the country more religious and to encourage people to be Christian. And because it has a religious purpose, it can't you know, be justified in a secular state. All our laws have to be based on universal ideas and reasons, not you know, appealing to a, a minor segment or even a major segment. And it goes through later in the ruling and you know, deals with a number of specific arguments that people try to bring up. They talk about how barring the municipal council from reciting the prayer would not amount to giving atheism and agnosticism prevalence over, tr over religious beliefs. That's the sort of argument that, oh, if, this uh, if the council can't pray, then you're promoting atheism. And you hear that a lot. And the court says, no, there is this distinction between unbelief and true neutrality. True neutrality presupposes abstention, but it does not amount to a stand favoring one view or another. It's basically saying, look, if the government does something, if the government's not doing something, it's not picking a side, you could be an atheist in that room or you could be a Christian. As soon as the government is talking, doing a prayer, it's taking a side. If the government got up there and told everyone you're, you can't believe in God, a Soviet-style sort of approach, or put up a, the church should be burnt to the ground kind of poster, that would be problematic. The other arguments brought up are things like the House of Commons opens with a prayer. And the court here argues that this, we haven't considered this really. Number one, parliaments are generally given authority to operate within their own walls. So MPs decide their own rules. You can't be, for example, sued for libel for what you say in parliament as a member of parliament because you should have ultimate freedom of expression there. As soon as they step out, and you'll hear MPs sometimes say this, hey, say that to me out in the hall. And what they mean is that I can sue you out there for what you're saying, but I can't sue you in here. Because the court doesn't want to restrict what parliament is doing because parliament is trying to conduct itself in a way that promotes democracy. And so parliament may have set its own rule to say its own prayer, but the court's not going to step into that because it's not trying to tell parliamentarians. Now, this kind of leaves it as an open question that maybe it actually is unconstitutional, or maybe it is fine but it says that argument doesn't come into play here. And the other argument really brought up is that the Canadian Charter starts with this um, preamble that says Canada is founded or recognizes the supremacy of God as part of our you know, makeup of before we get into what all our rights are. And here they say that can't lead to an interpretation of freedom of conscience and religion that authorizes the state to consciously promote a theistic faith. The preamble articulates political theory. It's this idea that you know, they're just words Essentially, the preamble is continually used by the religious right to say, look, Canada recognizes the supremacy of God, therefore Canada's a Christian country. And here the Supreme Court has said, yeah, that's just kind of like what they were thinking of to frame the rest of it. All that really matters in the charter is starting at section one. The preamble stuff is just flourish and to give you some ideas and put it in context. But don't worry about that. 
So they kind of just like struck it out in a way. And that's something the court has sort of built upon. None of these elements of this case really came out of nowhere. But it was still really great to see. Because you had here, I think it was all nine justices heard the case at the time. Eight of them wrote that majority decision that I just read from. Justice Rosalia Bella, who is still on Supreme Court today and sided with the majority on TWU, wrote a dissent. But it was, she still agreed that the prayer itself was unconstitutional and agreed with the you know, Supreme Court on the end. But her problem was they took kind of a convoluted route. So this gets into a bit of administrative law where the Supreme Court has these lower court decisions, like the tribunal. And those get treated in one of two ways. They're generally given deference that if they make a decision, the courts try to view them as experts in that field. So you have lots of these kind of tribunals. You have human rights tribunals that deal with that. You have, what are some other ones? There's professional bodies tend to have these. Tax courts might have them. And the courts don't want to try to pretend they know better because sometimes they don't. So they try to look at it as, did you come to your decision reasonably? The other alternative is, did you, did you make the correct decision? And correctness just means there is only one answer. Reasonableness could be two answers. And this is what comes up in the Trinity Western University issue because the Law Society is one of these, one of these you know, administrative bodies. And going through all of the cases, you see issues of, did they make a good decision? And part of the problem here in BC is they threw it to a referendum of their members. And it's hard to justify that that was a well thought through decision when it seems like a majority vote. So the, Supreme, the majority in this case tried to pick and choose. So they said the issue of, religious, of the state's duty of religious neutrality, that's a correctness question. There's only one possible answer there. And we've decided it this way. Then they picked a bunch of other issues and decided them on reasonableness. So it's kind of a like, why did you do this one? Why is this question more special than this question? Whereas Abella said, let's just do them all the same. Let's just treat them all as reasonable and simplify it. Because this administrative law, which I can see is confusing a lot of people, confuses a lot of lawyers. And it confuses a lot of justices. And this is a very contentious. You don't really need to spend any time thinking about it. I just want to make you aware of why someone did, one of the Supreme Court justices did like flag an issue here. And that's actually what comes up a lot in TWU. And that's why we have five decisions, essentially, or sorry, four decisions on what was otherwise a seven to two result. So the questions I kind of want to have you thinking about, rather than that administrative question, which is I probably didn't do a great job of explaining, the question I think that's more pertinent for us to think about in light of this case, this 2015 case, is does this make Canada more formally secular than the USA? The USA has, it's explicitly written in their constitution that the state can't establish you know, a religion and can't get entangled in that. But here we have the Supreme Court of Canada saying very clearly we have a duty of religious neutrality, that the government can't be promoting belief or non-belief. And I guess the other questions go to the deference questions. But you know, and what does this decision mean going forward? Because this one's actually getting cited a lot, which is good to see. It gets cited in everything I'm going to talk about from now on. You have to remember our charter only came into force in 1982. So it's very young. It's only a little bit older than me. It's been around for my entire life, which is great. But we have, in the US, they have you know, 200 years of case law. And that builds a legal foundation and an understanding. We have like 30 years. 
and some of it has changed in that time. On a medical assistance in dying, the court said no in the early 90s, and they said yes a year or two ago. The next case I want to talk about is Tunaha versus British Columbia, which was decided only in 2017. All the cases I'm going to talk about now are very recent. So this is a very interesting case. This relates to the proposed Jumbo Glacier Ski Resort in the East Kootenays. So the Tunaha Nation are an indigenous nation that claims territory in Alberta and into the west or the eastern edge of British Columbia. So they kind of are nomadic people with a large span of traditional territory. At the edge of that territory and just actually outside of it is Jumbo Glacier. So they've never actually said, we believe our ancestors and we consider that to be part of our territory. But they don't like the idea of the ski resort for multiple reasons, one of which was that they argued that one of their spirits, a grizzly bear spirit, inhabits the mountain, which they call Katmuk, and that if the ski resort is allowed to go ahead, it will chase the spirit away. And therefore, they can't pray to it, and they can't worship it, not in a you know, Christian way, but in their way, and this will destroy their religion. Therefore, allowing the ski resort to go ahead infringes their religious freedom. That's a very novel argument, and kind of challenges how I think we've generally thought of freedom of religion, is usually we don't tie it to places, but that's a more indigenous way of thinking it. So this case was generally viewed as like, how will the Supreme Court treat indigenous religious freedom claims? And part of this is they argued at the Supreme Court, British Columbia, they argued at the Court of Appeal, and both of those dismissed this claim, saying the government did enough consultation with them that even if the freedom of religion was infringed, it was done in a balanced way. So the one thing that is very different from between Canada and the US is section one of our charter says essentially other major rights, uh, the section two rights of freedom of religion, association, speech, association, uh, your equality rights, and a couple of your other rights can be infringed if the government has a reasonable, or can make a reason, not just a reasonable case, but it's a fairly high test, or if it needs to balance two rights. And this is why we don't have the like fundamental free speech that the US has, where we can have a hate speech law that is upheld because there's arguably a reasonable, compelling interest in stopping Nazis from advocating genocide. So this case gets to the Supreme Court of Canada with the Tunaha people, and they lose there as well. And every one of the nine justices would dismiss their appeal. Seven of the justices write the majority opinion, and another two disagree for the reasons again, but give the same result. So the first seven justices actually say their religious freedom rights aren't infringed. And this, just, and this decision was written by uh, Chief Justice at the time, Beverly McLaughlin, and new justice at the time, Malcolm Rowe, who's from Newfoundland. People were very interested in what Malcolm Rowe was going to be doing. He is uh, Justin Trudeau's first appointment to the Supreme Court of Canada, and no one really knew much about him other than he did a lot of fishing law out in Newfoundland, which I guess is important out there. But the one thing I did see about Malcolm Rowe that's interesting is he helped co-write the bill and the policy that helped disestablish the religious schools in Newfoundland. So Newfoundland, when it joined Confederation in 49, I want to say, had seven separate school districts all equally funded and all run by different religious sects. In the 90s, they decided this is ridiculous, and they held a referendum to see if they wanted to keep that. They said no, and Justice Rowe, or 
I guess he was Judge Rowe at the time, I believe, helped write a bill that would allow the government to amend the Constitution, because this was in the British North America Act, that provinces can have religious schools. And all that basically happened is the legislature of Newfoundland passed a law that said, we don't want religious schools anymore, and Parliament of Canada passes a quick one that says, we don't want, fine, you know, that's your decision, education's your pro priority. And they fixed it, and now there's just one secular school district in Newfoundland. But people didn't know what Malcolm Rowe was gonna do on the Supreme Court of Canada, and here he goes with Justice McLaughlin and writes that the Tunuha's religious freedom hasn't been infringed here. And the reasoning is really interesting. So to say that your religious freedom has been infringed in Canada, the courts generally make a test of two parts, I believe it is. The first is, do you have a sincerely held belief? So it's not, you know, is this what the church says? You know, does, is this in the Bible? They don't test what your, the like text of your belief. They sort of ask you to testify before court this doesn't even really happen. As long as you are willing to go up and say, I sincerely believe that I am required by God to smoke weed every day. And this has happened because people try to set up a church of weed before it was legalized. And the court, depending on if the belief fits within what's a normal belief or you know, a typical one, I think tends to treat it very simply, like fine, that seems normal. We'll check you have a sincerely held belief. It's not clear what they do when it gets atypical like that. And I haven't reread the weed church cases to see. But in this one, they go, all right, we believe the Tunaha people when they say they sincerely believe the grizzly bear spirit lives there and that if the ski hill will be built, it'll go away. We believe that. But they say the second part is that the government, the second part of the test is that the government's action has to like substantially actually interfere with the belief. Now, it seems like that's happening here, but what Roe and McLaughlin say is that what the government isn't obligated to do is to protect the object of your belief. So they can't stop you from believing anything, but they're not obligated to actually protect the grizzly bear. It's not the government's job, and they say, the government shouldn't protect the object of beliefs or the spiritual focus point of worship, such as the grizzly bear spirit. So essentially, you believe in that, we're not stopping you from believing in that, but so therefore, there's no infringement here, essentially, we're not stopping you from believing the grizzly bear spirit lives there or has gone away. Therefore, if the, your rights aren't infringed, there's no issue and the ski hill can go ahead. And they made it that simple. The two justices who disagreed found that that would mean that their beliefs become nothing more than empty words and hollow gestures as because they'd be praying to a spirit that they don't think is actually there. So while they could still pray, it would be pointless. And so the government's actions would actually substantially interfere with to practice their religion. But the two dissenting justices said the government's consultation was sufficient and they tried to make reasonable accommodations to facilitate this and in the end it was irreconcilable and you know they let the ski hole go ahead. And this is interesting because it's tough to think you know should the state be protecting objects of belief like should the government be protecting God that seems wrong but it's also kind of made their belief Hollow. So I don't actually know how I stand on this one. And one of the things the dissent talks about is, does this privilege essentially like a Judeo-Christian approach to religion where it's really hard for the government to like regulate the objects of Christian belief because they're immaterial and everywhere. Place-based ones like indigenous, some, some indigenous beliefs are more directly affected by the government. But I also don't want the government protecting spirits. So 
it's an, it's an interesting one. And it, this could also come up where if the government was protecting essentially spirits in places, what happens if you have competing religious claims? What if you have two different nations who say, actually building it will bring our spirit there or something? How, does, how do we balance that? And the courts, when I talked about you know, taking someone's word that their belief is sincerely held, part of that is because we don't want our courts playing religious um, arbiters. We don't want the courts trying to decide is your interpretation of the Quran correct one, the correct one? That's not the purpose of a secular judicial system, especially when we want people to be able to really come up with whatever, I mean, we don't necessarily want people to come up with whatever religion they can, but that is their freedom and that is their right. So the Tunaha ruling was interesting and it made a lot of people notice Malcolm Rowe because he was co-authoring on it. The next ruling was more widely seen as a win for the religious though, and this is the Highwood Congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses of Calgary area, basically, versus Randy Wall. And this was decided just this year. So Randy Wall was a member of this Jehovah's Witnesses group. He was disfellowed following allegations of drunkenness and verbally abusing his wife, so I'm not sure he's a great guy, but you can't really pick your you know, characters in judicial law. They just kind of are the people who inevitably you know, end up in court. Wall felt aggrieved though. He didn't think he should be disfellowed. What happened was because of the way Jehovah's Witnesses tend to operate more in like a cult, he was disowned by everyone he knew. Randy was a realtor in Calgary and all his clients were fellow Jehovah's Witnesses and he found that suddenly he had no more clients and he found that this like disfellowing was really unjust and he felt really aggrieved by this and he said, look, I can't do any more work. I'm being socially shunned even well and beyond the church walls. And so he appealed through the church process, which is generally, I think you talk to your priest in the congregation you're in, then you can get a tribunal of a couple like neighboring priests and they sort of hear your case and try to come to a better result. And I think there might've been one process after that. And at every stage they're like, no, get out. And so he went to the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench and said, this was unjust, I want you to review their decision. Did they do something like fundamentally, essentially illegal by kicking him out? You know, did they do it in a reasonable way? And he also, and I think he actually won at the Court of Queen, the Superior Court in Alberta. If he lost, don't quote me on that, but it gets appealed to the Alberta Court of Appeal and it also sides with him. And their reasoning for intervening in this, because you wouldn't generally think if you get kicked out of your snooker club, say, that you can sue them. But this is what he did. And the court said, you know, there's been a, fundament, a breach of fundamental natural justice here. It's such a like egregious wrong that has happened to him that not that he was kicked out, but that how he was kicked out was unjust. Generally, courts will only review like interactions between individuals if there's property or civil rights engaged. So if, you know, we're exchanging goods or it's an employment contract, and you feel that the other party cheated you, then you can sue. Or you know, a discrimination issue, you can sue in that case. They don't generally deal with these association questions because you know, we have freedom of association in this country. But the courts at that level said, you know, there is this fundamental, people should at least treat each other fairly or something. And it was, a bit, it was interesting to see because there is a level of, you know, should courts be able to open the church doors and peek around a little bit. 
Well, the Supreme Court of Canada definitely didn't agree. And this was Malcolm Rowe writing again in a unanimous decision where everyone basically agreed. And he said, no, courts should not be doing this. So the specific tool they used is called judicial review, which is when a court reviews a lower decision. This is what happened in the Law Society case. This is what happened in Saguenay. And here they said judicial review isn't available for these types of things for three reasons. Or there's three reasons. So when you are using judicial review, the point of it is to review a public decision maker, like a human rights tribunal, something acting with public authority like the Law Society. Essentially anything the government has given power, explicit power, it can review. Now, Wall's argument was, as a society, it was a creation of an act, and therefore, or like registered under the Society Act, and it was therefore given by the power by the government. Only for some reason, this church was an unincorporated society, and so it didn't really have the power there. The second reason to do judicial review is that there's an underlying legal right at play, like the property or civil rights I talked about, and Malcolm Rowe writes here, those aren't at play. And third, there has to be a justiciable issue. That is, there should be a question that the courts can decide. And here, Malcolm Rowe says, the questions at play are more religious in nature. They're, did they follow the rules of the Bible as they interpret them? Because the JWs actually built their appeal system on the Bible, of course. And they actually like quote, I forget the verse, but you know, they have a verse that they say, this is how we should set up our appeal system. And you know, I've heard them, I've heard people use the Bible for a lot of things, but setting up legal systems based on like one line is new to me. But the court's basic ruling was, the court's basic decision was, we don't want to be deciding whether their interpretation of the Bible is right. That's not our place. Because you can have th you know, 30 Christians read the same passage and come to 40 interpretations. And it gets really fuzzy on um, that religious freedom question if the courts are looking at that. So they threw out Wall's appeal, and they said, he's out. And it might suck, and that might be really a garbage thing they did to him, but it's not for the courts to you know, fix it for him. He needs to go make better friends, I guess. And the questions here, for us, I guess, are, does this mean that religions are pretty much free to do whatever they want to their members, as long as it's not a criminal action, say? Right? They can't sexually abuse their people, or they're not supposed to be able to sexually abuse their people, and so forth. But can they basically do whatever they want within their halls? And the other kind of question is, if Highwood did have more legal bylaws, would that have changed the case? Because that kind of affects almost like our own running, because we are a registered charity with a constitution and bylaws that are registered with the BC Societies Act. Would we be a little bit more reviewable? And I'm not totally sure about that. But Highwood's an interesting case, and it was hailed as a win for freedom of religion and freedom of association for the obvious re reasons that the religion got to tell uh, one guy what's what. And finally, of the cases that are complete, Trinity Western University, which I won't spend too much time on. We've talked many times about where this case came from. Basically, Trinity Western wanted to open a law school and didn't want to let gay people in through its community covenant. The law societies in BC and Ontario said no, and lawsuits ensued until it reached the Supreme Court of Canada. As a reminder, the majority, which was five judges, said the law school can't open, and the law societies made the right decision. They did say that the religious freedom of the members of the Trinity Western community, whatever that means, I guess the students and faculty and board of directors as individual humans, their rights were infringed, 
but not really that much because there's no like right to a law school. It doesn't say you need a law school in the Bible. And even by their own testimony, most of the students who would have wanted to go to a law school said, yeah, it would have been nice, but I just would just go any somewhere else if it's not available. So it didn't seem like they were so like sincere, I guess would be the way to put it, that they needed a Christian law school to go to hold their faith. The other side of the scale though, is the majority said the harm to the LGBTQ community would be substantial because there would be fewer spaces available for them. Those who went there would be under immense pressure and coercion to behave in a Christian way, to you know, submit to what everyone else is saying. And therefore, you know, looking at this balance, the harm is here, the harm to the LGBTQ community is here, the infringement for the religion is here, so it's reasonable to side the way the law societies did. Uh, Chief Justice McLaughlin disagreed, even though she came to the same result. She said, no, actually their religious freedoms are severely infringed. They do sincerely tell us that they want a law school and that it's better for their faith to be around only Christians or people who are only acting Christian. So we have to take them at that and therefore it is a serious infringement. But even though that scale comes up here, this one is still pretty high and therefore it's still reasonable for the law society to go over here. But I guess in her view, maybe it would have been reasonable to go the other way as well. Whereas in the majority decision, since it was balanced like this, it seems like there was only one reasonable answer. And that can come up later. Malcolm Rowe gets most interesting here and really gets noticed because he goes left, like really far. He agrees with us entirely, essentially. We went there and said Trinity Western University is an institution as a brick and mortar school and a creation of government as a society. It therefore doesn't have a religion. It doesn't believe things. And if it does, it should be subject to tests. But he goes, yeah, of course, that makes sense. We'll check off that argument. And he also agrees with the Canadian Secular Alliance and the argument we made at the Court of Appeal, which is that if we grant TWU this ability to use the covenant in the way it wants to, it's going to coerce non-believers to be Christian. Now, TWU, by its own admission, admits people of all faiths and none, and they brag about it because they want to be a diverse multicultural campus that can invite international students and make a lot of money, but they want them all to live by a Christian standard. Now, if the government is allowing this law school to do this, it's basically the government stamping this coercion of non-religious non people to be religious. And this has real consequences because not everyone who goes to TWU effectively goes there by choice. Like when you talk to queer people who are at TWU, which do ex they do exist, many of them come from conservative Christian families where they say, all right, I want to go to law school or I want to go to whatever post-secondary education. Their parents go, all right, well, here's the three schools you can go to because they're super Christian and one of them's TWU. Other kids get there and because they've come from those types of families, only realize they're not you know, straight wanting a heterosexual marriage then. And these create the kind of complexities that I think get missed when you listen to TW's talk where they're like, well, we do have gay people here, but they're happy to sign it. And there are testimonies of people who are not. So Roe brings up that compel, uh, that coercion as a serious issue. And because he said religious freedom has not been infringed, this is a really easy case to decide since there's no charter issue at play. The law society can do what it wants. No one's rights are infringed. So what's wrong with their decision? His is, actually, his is one of the most clean decisions in this, actually, because the majority tries to talk about this 
everyone else actually talks about these members of the TW community whose rights are infringed, but it's never really clear what individual people those are. So when you bring a lawsuit, you generally have your name on it because you are the, inf you know, the victim or the person whose right has been damaged and you are seeking recourse and you're seeking the justice system to fix a problem that has happened to you. On this case, you have Trinity Western University as an organization and you have one guy named Braden Volkanant who just wanted to go there as a law school, but he didn't really get crossed as much and, or test, you know, teased out. So this question of you know, who is the TW community I think is a, a live one. And Canadian courts have generally not answered this other question of do institutions have religious freedom? Well, Roe has given us the first no, and maybe we can build on that to a majority of opinion in the future. The two in the minority were um, Justice Brown and Cote. Cote is known as like the most dissenting judge, or I think that's where she's trying to go. So she just tries to, maybe not actively, but it seems like she's always on a dissent if there's going to be one. They both say that actually the 2A infringement is very great and the LGBTQ harm is not very great and therefore this was an unreasonable decision and they both sided with Trinity Western University. But that was two judges of nine. So the questions that come up from this is where, what does this decision mean? A lot of lawyers kind of looked at it and went, it talks a lot about charter values, which is a fuzzy phrase that people don't really know what to do with, lawyers specifically. It's a very split decision, so it's not a very unanimous, clear one. And what, but even more tangibly, what does this mean to programs that are accredited at TW, like their teacher's college that went through a Supreme Court battle and where they won, or their, I think they have a psychology department and a few other like medical ones as well. I don't know the answer to those yet, but we can look at a couple ongoing cases. I realized I rambled too long about the first cases, so I'll go through these a bit quicker. The first one is one that I've talked about on our blog in the past, and it's Weber Academy. This is a private independent school in Calgary that does receive government funding, but that's not at play here. It's sort of like West Point Gray Academy, let's say. Think of it like that. Uh, the school defines itself as a non-denominational school where they welcome students and train them in a ritzy environment, essentially. At this school went, were admitted to Muslim students, and these Muslim students believed they had the duty to pray five times a day, and they asked for permission from the school and their teachers to find somewhere to do that quietly so they wouldn't disturb anyone else. Some teachers were helpful, would let them use an empty classroom or otherwise, uh, but eventually the school caught wind and got frustrated and said, no, we're a non-denominational school, there's no praying here, there's no being religious. You can't do it here. So the students would go home sometimes to do it. And in a couple cases actually went out in the Calgary winter and prayed in the snow. This comes up against the duty of religious accommodation under human rights law because essentially the government has said with the Human Rights Act that private organizations can't force people to be religious or to be not religious. Just in the same way you can't have a no black sign on your window, you can't have a no Muslim sign. And the argument the students made is that not allowing them to have somewhere private and quiet to pray was a no Muslim sign. The Human Rights Tribunal sided with the students and so did the Alberta Court of Queen's Bench. But Weber recently went to the Alberta Court of Appeal and they didn't change their arguments so much, but one of their arguments got more picked up, it seems. And they built upon it by saying, our non-denominational beliefs as a school, that character that we've been talking about through all these other cases, should actually be treated as a religious 
belief of its own. And therefore, the, our non-denominational beliefs, whatever that means, should overrule the student's right to pray, which is a weird question. The Alberta Court of Appeal said, that's a new question. We haven't heard evidence on this because when you go to an appeal court, you only bring up new legal arguments. You don't tend to test new evidence or hear new facts. And so they said, we don't know how to, we're not going to answer this because we haven't heard from experts, yes and no. We're going to send this back to the Human Rights Tribunal. And the Court of Appeal also found some factual errors, which in the tribunal's initial ruling, they got some dates wrong or claims. I don't remember exactly. But the Court of Appeal has basically said this goes back to the Human Rights Tribunal. They need to decide whether essentially secularism is a religion and whether that means you can tell people not to pray in your school as an organization, as an institution. And we'll find out where that goes when they eventually get around to hearing it. And I think this is a really challenging one because putting secularism as a religion, especially if it's the institution. So here you have an organization now, who we've just argued can't have a religion, claiming that atheism is their religion, or secular, non-denominational beliefs, whatever those are. We've said on the record that we don't think organizations can have a religion, so we can't agree with them there. They're also trying to compel individuals, and that's where I have a lot of issue with this, what this school is trying to do, is they're really trying to tell people what they can or can't do when that action doesn't really affect others. There's some other issues at the school where they have allowed kids to wear crosses, so like just little uh, necklaces. And the uh, Muslim students brought that up as, well, why do they get to wear a cross when we can't pray when we want? And so there's some other issues like that. If Weber Academy wins, I find that hard to reconcile with Trinity Western University, essentially, because of those same questions we were just talking about. But it's an open one, and it's one to think about and really try and figure out. It's a challenging one for sure. Another one that's ongoing and, well, with Doug Ford being elected, maybe over. Medical assistance in dying, as you know, was legalized in Canada in 2015 with the Bill C-14. Well, it was actually legalized with the Supreme Court of Canada knocking down the law, but Bill C-14 created the structure. In Ontario, the College of Physicians and Surgeons passed a policy that said every doctor has to do an effective referral. If someone comes and asks for a medical assistance in dying, you have to get them to someone who will do it if you don't want to do it. If your religion says you don't want to do it, you need to get that patient to someone else. You can't just give them a pamphlet. That's not good enough. Also, if it's an emergency and you're the only person there who's qualified, you have to do it. Even if you really believe it's wrong, it's your job and your duty as a medical professional. The Christian Medical and Dental Society of Canada sued saying this is an infringement on their freedom of religion as their members, and they were joined by the usual cadre of religious law groups that are at all of these cases. This case went to trial last year and was actually decided earlier this year, and the judge upheld the policy and essentially struck out the, or you know, dismissed their complaint. The judge did find that these policies infringe the rights of Christian doctors who don't want to do it because you know, they, if they sincerely believe, they shouldn't be assisting with someone's death. And this policy is telling them to assist with someone's death, even indirectly. That is an infringement. But like I said, you can, under Section 1, infringe upon people's freedoms if there's a good argument for it. And the specific test the government has set out, or the courts have set out, is three parts. 
So for, a, for your right to be infringed, the policy that is infringing it has to be something prescribed by law. That's kind of the obvious one. Otherwise, there's nothing at issue. It has to serve a pressing or substantial objective. So it can't just be because they feel like it. There has to be a purpose to it. Like, why are they doing it? And then that objective has to be done in a rational, rational, minimally impairing, and proportionate way. And that's like a multi-pronged tier. But essentially, they have to do, have a good reason for it. They have to have thought it through. It has to be a secular reason, as we've talked about. It has to be the least um, infringing way. If you have two options before the uh, government that achieve the same end, the government should choose the one that infringes fewer rights. I think that just feels like something we can all agree on. And it should be proportionate. So you shouldn't like unfairly, they kind of all tie together. They shouldn't unfairly infringe. And the judge here decided Ontario's college met all of these tests. So they said the evidence demonstrates that if this policy doesn't in isn't in place, there will be a risk to access to medical assistance and dying. You'll have that case of small towns where doctors, the only doctor who can perform assisted death might be an evangelical Christian who doesn't want to, and then anyone in that neighborhood can't get it. Or you'll have cases like Saint, the Ian Shearer, I believe, who is here in Vancouver at St. Paul's, couldn't get an assisted death there, had to get a transfer to VGH where he could get one, but he had to organize that himself, and it was severely um, taxing on him and an excruciating journey. The judge found the policy was reasonable as the college actually had documented how they came to this decision. So they didn't just implement it without thinking. They had an evidentiary chain of thinking it through. So they showed that they thought about this. This is one thing the Law Society of BC didn't do well. Now, courts are sometimes willing to defer to lower ones saying they're probably doing it reasonable and, or rationally unless you can prove they didn't. Like maybe there's a record of a speech where someone's like, fuck the Christians, let's just let, make them do this. That would be bad. So if you're ever on one of these tribunals, think about that. And the judge even writes, the goal of ensuring access to healthcare, in particular equitable access to healthcare, is pressing and substantial. The effective referral requirements of the policies are rationally connected to the goal. And the impair the individual applicant's rights as little as possible in order to achieve it. Essentially, they meet the test. There's maybe other ways to do it, but this is a reasonably good one and seems to be the best way to do it. And they hold the same questions on those emergency ones. Like if you're the only doctor there in the emergency and that person meets the criteria. Now the question is, with the change in government in Ontario, will there be pressure for the College of, Ontario, of Physicians and Surgeons to rescind this policy for something that's more like the rest of Canada. Ontario and I think Nova Scotia are the only two provinces with a policy this good, that like dying with dignity Canada, Robert Gold steals. BCs, I think the effective referral is much less um, onerous. They don't have to physically get you there, essentially. But the question on a, if this goes, doesn't um, get overturned by the government, and I don't know the politics of how the government can interact with the college. I think the college is pretty independent. So if this does get appealed by the Christian doctors, what does TWU mean here? Because TWU seems to suggest that the government has actually more space to infringe upon re religious freedom when there's other pressing goals. So not just willy-nilly, but you know, LGBTQ equality, access to healthcare. These could be justifications to uphold this ruling. And the other question is just politically, how do we get more provinces to do what Ontario did and make sure people have access to assisted dying? Well, now we can at least point to a decision that says it's going that way. Next up, 
quickly as Canada Summer Jobs, which is an ongoing controversy that I've talked about before. Basically, the Trudeau government, basically, the government has this program where individual nonprofits or organizations can apply for funding for a summer student. Uh, those, that funding is doled out by the MP in the riding. They get the applications and they get to choose. And so in the past, a lot of actually very vocally and actively anti-choice organizations, like the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform, I think it's called, the ones who put those like graphic anti-abortion posters on campuses, they were getting money for this. And the liberals didn't like this because they're officially a pro-choice party. And so they put in a policy that said, if you are going to apply for this money, you have to check a box that says, the job and my organization's core mandate respect the individual human rights in Canada, the Charter of rights, the values of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and this includes explicitly reproductive rights and the right to freedom of discrimination. And it names all of the grounds, including sexual orientation and gender identity. So your job and your organization can't be anti-choice, it can't be homophobic, it can't be transphobic, or racist, or other things. Right to Life Association of Toronto, which has gotten money from this program in the past, refused to sign that for some reason, and they sued. They said, and they didn't just sue, they asked for an injunction. So an injunction, a preliminary injunction, is when you ask the court, when you're filing a lawsuit, to stop the law from coming into effect. So before we've even decided whether you're right or the government's right, let's just put the, the law on pause because it might be really bad. Bad things could happen if it comes into play. And because of that, there's a test for injunctions, which is basically that you your issue has to be a serious constitutional issue. Can't just be because you're grumpy. That passing, that bringing the law in would result in irreparable harm. So one good example would be there's an injunction being filed right now and heard this week for Site C Dam up north. And the First Nation there is arguing that if this dam's allowed to go ahead, it will flood their land and that's irreparable. I don't know if they'll win on that argument, but that seems like a strong, that seems like an irreparable harm argument. And the third test is that the balance favors uh, not enforcing it. So you kind of have to, the judge has to do a quick look at the arguments of both sides, because he's not doing a full hearing, and say, should we maintain the status quo, essentially, or is there a pressing argument for bringing this in? Now, the federal court judge who heard this injunction argument for this Canada Summer Jobs complaint by the Right to Life Association threw out the pro-lifers' arguments on all three grounds. He said, it's not a serious constitutional issue. He said, there's no irreparable harm here that they've shown. And there's actually a good argument for doing it. Because they generally, in these cases, the court assumes the government has a noble purpose until later. And that's fun. It's fun to see the uh, court actually say that you know, this isn't a serious constitutional issue. They're just complaining that they don't get a privilege that they used to get. Because this money wasn't guaranteed to everyone. The other interesting thing to this is the Right to Life Association didn't actually provide any evidence of how not getting this money would harm them. They didn't give a budget. They didn't give their constitution. So they kind of just complained they weren't going to get money while saying, we'll be forced to shut our doors if we don't get this. But then they didn't prove it. So the judge was really harsh on them for that. He's like, come on. If you're going to claim harm, you have to do some work. But this case is still going ahead. So it'll come to a full hearing, and we'll have to see where that goes. There is an argument here that this is compelled speech, that this is the government forcing organizations to take a stand on issues that they don't necessarily want to take a stand on. There are a couple other lawsuits similar to this Right to Life one by 
business or more like secular sounding businesses where they say we don't have a position on abortion and we shouldn't have to be taking it. This again comes up against this TWU idea of the government has a compelling purpose for doing this, of wanting to promote human rights, and will that overrule the arguments there? The final one I'll touch on quickly actually came out after TWU. It's the only one, it's an interim ruling. But it cites the Trinity Western University ruling, and that's why I'm sort of optimistic. I keep alluding back to it. So this is Alberta's Gay-Straight Alliance Bill 24 that happened. Essentially, the Alberta NDP passed Bill 24 early in their mandate, which would require all public schools, independent schools, other schools to not just have um, policies that prevent anti-gay bullying or gay bullying, um, but actually explicitly allow gay-straight alliances in those schools and ban them from blocking them. And just basically also tell those schools that they can't tell parents if those kids join those clubs. The independent schools, which are largely religious in Alberta, complained and sued. And they filed again for an injunction saying, we don't want this act to come into play. And the judge threw out their injunction request again for the same kind of reasons. He said there's, it seemed, and he actually said there's compelling evidence that these clubs are very advantageous to students. They, the pro-LGBT groups brought in a lot of really good witnesses to argue about this, whereas the uh, religious schools brought in people who talked about them as ideological sex clubs and talked about things that they were showing kids where they had no evidence that that was actually happening. The court basically then decides that both based on the previous injunction of the Right to Life Society that failed and Trinity Western, there's a good argument for allowing these clubs to open and we'll hear the rest of the arguments later. So we'll have to see where this case ultimately goes. I think both of these cases show promising signs, but I'm not lawyer and courts can go whatever way they want. I think this is also a good sign of what, Alberta, uh, what British Columbia could do to promote equality within the independent schools, well, at least while we're still funding them, but even if we stopped. One of the issues I really have with these schools is the kids who go there, like Trinity Western, really don't have a choice, especially at elementary school level. Those are the kids who most need protection. And while parents do have some rights to protect, you know, raise their children according to their religion, that's not an all-encompassing right. So that's where we're at. Undoubtedly, there will be other cases that pop up as little infringements go, but I went really long and I'm sure we could talk a lot, but let's go to questions.